There's still a little bit of space left in the seat around, but yeah, it's it's nearly there. All right, and we're going to post this on the Ides of March. So what could go wrong? Oh, wow, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> so just uh, don't wear your toga and you'll be good to go. I'll keep that in mind that day. I mean, people usually wear togas here, but I'll, I'll shy away from it. That I appreciate the attention to detail. I think that's a very particular vibe that you want to put out yeah. for your employees and recognize that ultimately you're in this for the debauchery. <laughs> right. And it helps to have a really supportive partner one way or another. Who, oh, yeah. If you have to, you know, travel and press the flesh and and do whatever, spread the word. You know, if you've got kids, that partner's got to be ready to take on those responsibilities, which are not trifling. No, I think the main thing, like with with my uh, wife, uh, is that convincing her to sell fun for the first year, because this was a COVID project. And at the end of the day, this started. Uh, I had the idea pre-COVID by about two three months. But then COVID kicked in and we're in the house for we didn't know how long. I knew I figured it was going to be a year at least. It was a little longer than that. But I had time. So I had a lot of time to learn a lot of different skills. I didn't go to business school. I didn't know winemaking. I didn't know chemistry very well. Uh, I tried to forget it from high school. But my <laughs> partner, my Boy, wife. Boy, you're really overselling yourself at this point. <laughs> Well, I mean, that's my starting point. I think it's kind of, you know, inspiring in some way to listen. If you just keep doing it, you can get this stuff. You know, if you you put in your 10,000 hours, you can figure it out. Yeah, for sure. A lot of these things like inventing this thing, it's it's somebody from the outside who comes in and says, wait a second. I know this from another industry. Like I worked in healthcare, I worked at seminar else. And I'm thinking there's a way to cover a gap in the experience and make this better by borrowing from other industries that you know people in the wine industry may not even think about or think we're just going to keep doing it the same old way. There's a lot of that. But again, yeah. like with the partner thing, I had to get buy-in to say, listen, I got to pay my own legal fees. You know, you got to yeah. file your patent, you got to file your incorporation, you got to do a lot of things that require a retainer. It's not a small task. Yeah. Now, how long have you been in California? It's been off and on. So I, I've been in California twice in my life. This one, it's been a few years this time. But I was in Boston before that for about eight and a half years, almost nine. And then off and on before that in you know, Europe. I was in California again before. You know, So it's it's been a lot of ping-ponging. Currently, I, don't, I mean, we're not going anywhere now, but it's been a few years here. Again, pre-COVID, moved here, got married, and then COVID kicked in. So, um, yeah. <laughs> All right. Welcome to married life, Mike. <laughs> yeah, yeah, in the house. Married You've just people. gotten married, and now you're going to be in each other's face for the next yeah. 36 months. That's right. That's Baptism by fire. So we just go to different ends of it. But um, right. I think, it, you know, it was a, you know, there's some buy-in from, you know, uh, not just the money thing, but the, listen, this is going to be seven days a week to do this because you're, you, you know, you still have to do your job and pay the bills. So this is a side hustle that, was me working nights, me working on the weekend. Um, but it was, I was so passionate about it and have been that it doesn't feel like work. You know, it feels like it's enjoyable. Um, I got to watch it to where I'm not doing it too much to where I have some balance in my life. I think that's the a big thing too. <laughs> not get so carried away that you just forget like, oh yeah, I've got actually a personal life too. 
And speaking of unrelenting passion, you are listening to the successfully funded podcast brought to you by Kiwi Tech, a growing ecosystem of entrepreneurs, investors, mentors, accelerators, incubators, and corporations. We help early and growth stage startups build viable products, drive traction, raise capital, and scale their businesses. Now, before we get started here with Simple Labs, a quick disclaimer about what you're about to hear. KiwiTech is not acting as a broker, dealer, or investment advisor, and is not registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission in any such capacities. At no time does KiwiTech provide investment advice, endorsement, analysis, or recommendations with respect to securities. Information contained herein should be viewed for entertainment purposes only. KiwiTech does not verify or assure that information provided by any issuer offering its securities is accurate or complete, or that the valuation of such securities is appropriate. Investing in securities, particularly in securities issued by startup companies, involves substantial risk, and investors should be able to bear the loss of their entire investment. Those are the greatest hits. You can find the full disclaimer on our podcast website, successfullyfundedpodcast.com slash disclaimer. And now onto the show where we are talking with the CEO of Simple Labs, who are the makers of Cogni, a wireless monitor that provides continuous clarity to winemakers and vineyards, regardless of scale, during the barrel aging process. When levels dip out of user set tolerance ranges, Cogni alerts winemakers so that they can determine next steps. And I'm here with the founder, inventor, mad scientist, and CEO, Mike Sloan. Mike, welcome. Hey, how are you? I'm good. I just uh, came out of a 70 hours of power outage. So um, I have a different flavor of that where I'm in Napa and we just we have snow on the mountains. So um, I've heard. Yeah. California, it's like snow or fire. Yeah. It's craziness. Uh, There's people out there taking photos, not of the vines, but of the mountains with snow on them around the vines. It's craziness over here right now. Well, it's nice not to see them burning, I would imagine. Um, That's very true. But as a uh, former resident of Massachusetts, you do uh, you are familiar with uh, the accumulation of snow. But you're also you're a son of Kentucky, though. Am I right? Correct. Yeah, I grew up uh, outside of Louisville, Kentucky, which is uh, very much bourbon country. Um, got exposed to the aging of whiskey and bourbon first uh, in my life, especially in my design life. When I first started out, we were doing a lot of work for you know, Brown Foreman and other brands were related to them because uh, that, that was one of the main clients you could get in Louisville. So, you know, you get exposed to it naturally one way or another over time, just like here in California, you get exposed to wine no matter what, you know, somebody right. knows somebody who's in the business. So, well, it sounds like that was your segue point, right? Because you grew up at least aware of the fermentation process and how bourbon was made and how many zillions of different brands there are. Clearly, it's it's blown up a lot. I keep thinking, too, there's that great line in uh, Casablanca when he talks about, well, perhaps it was the bourbon, but now I'm reasonably yeah. sober. It was a much more exotic drink way back in the day, but now... Now it's a gentleman's drink. It's kind of a, it's got gentrified beyond all belief, especially Louisville has been impressive to see what's happened in the last 20 years, at least, because I remember it a very different place, you know, but bourbon has really evolved there and grown into something pretty amazing um, and what was louisville like before louisville was the urban bourbon trail and attracted a whole new whole new cohort of tourists who come from come to bardstown and check out the festival and it became a whole thing yeah i mean louisville was a great place to grow up for sure um it's a great place to have a family 
it was back then as well. I mean, the primary focus back then was, you know, horse racing and there was bourbon, but you had to go to Bardstown or somewhere outside the city to really see it or go to, to a tasting room or go see bottling or even see the barrels themselves. So that that's what's changed is they brought that into the city, right? Where really Which makes a lot of sense, yeah. Yeah, I mean, a lot of those old buildings down there were were bourbon warehouses anyway, off the Ohio, Ohio River with steamboats and, you know, but that's way back in the day. And it, they've kind of brought that back to life in a way, which is pretty cool to see. It was a great place to, you know, to grow up and it's a great place to say, it's you know, that's my hometown. Yeah, it's a great place to buy an oversized baseball bat. That's exactly um, right. If you go to the factory too, you see some of the bats that these big guys swung yeah. back in the 30s and 40s. I mean, you can't get your hands around them. It's staggering. Yeah, uh, I used to work right across the street from the bat factory on 9th and Main. And I remember the day they brought in the huge bat to install it uh, outside. <laughs> All they right. Like, yeah. What's going on here? This bat is like 100 feet tall. You know, they wanted they wanted to make it a showpiece and it is. Uh, but it's it's a great place to go see as well, yeah. Yeah, and while you're there, you got to get to Churchill Downs. You got to get to the Ali Center. That's Extraordinary. Anyway, so now you've gotten you've worked your way into wine. So before we get to the transition to Napa and the arrival of Simple Labs, what was it like to be a kid in Louisville? What was your family like? How did you start thinking about being an entrepreneur? How early did that start for you? It didn't start until later, to be honest. I think what happened was I started in the design world. So I just started as a graphic designer. You know, the internet was just getting started. So I started with that world. Did you have email in college? I did, but it was more of the, you know, the, what do they call it? ARPANET or whatever. I mean, it was more of the, I'm right. talking to a university in Helsinki or something. You right, CompuServe with a bunch of numbers. Yeah, that was pretty yeah, much it. That was pretty cool. But right. I started with that. And I think the thing that sparked it I had a mentor named Julius Friedman, which is a hugely famous graphic designer in Louisville. And I started working with him. And that meant that I was contractor. I was self-employed for the first time. And I got a taste for that and understanding of you have a lot more control of your own future, uh, a lot more control of the work you want to do or not do. And then you grow it over time. I, I was lucky enough to have him teach me the business of design. And that's where I think the skill sets for some of those Here's how to run your own show started and the work ethic required to do it too. I mean, you know. And diligence, I would think. No, yeah. I mean, my first year in college, I was at Speed Scientific. I was doing engineering and then I transferred to arts and sciences. So I was definitely using both sides of my brain a lot um, growing up. That came into play too. I mean, I think that being able to shift from left to right side um, right. when you're talking about, I am now I'm thinking about my brand or now I'm thinking about you know, chemical reactions or something like that with this, with what we're doing now. So it's a, it's have it's a heavy load on both sides. You have to be able to just switch and not be so, you know, comfortable little corner in your right side of your brain all the time. Right. But now you're working on simple labs. So what was the first inspiration to segue from bourbon into wine? It was I think it's a very different thing. I, for what I, what little I know about the spirits, the difference between bourbon and wine is that once bourbon is aged and then bottled it's there forever it's a it has stasis and you drink it but wine is a living thing which yes. you know which all constantly evolves and you can turn and and i you know basically developed that interest watching you know sideways <laughs> yeah, exactly. which is a terrific movie about male menopause <laughs> but anyway uh so yeah how would how did that inspiration to move on to wine uh, take hold and which came first the wine industry or 
the idea for Cogni? I think the wine industry came first. I remember one day uh, my wife, who was working contracts at Hospital Networks at the time, was at uh, her local place that she was currently working. And somebody mentioned, hey, I, I lease out space to hold wine barrels. And they made money as sort of reoccurring income. It sounded like you just let them sit there and you get you just got extra money every month. Right. So th- that was curious to me. So I think that's the first time I heard and started looking into the wine industry seriously from the inside, not the, you know, I'm a tourist going to a tasting room in Napa is a very different thing than I'm looking at a warehouse and how these people work and what's involved and how would I store it? Well, I mean, I found out after that that it's really damn expensive to get warehouse space and store barrels, you know, and the maintenance required. That Especially in the Bay Area, I would imagine, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, the the real estate up here per acre is pretty steep. Astonishing. <laughs> Astonishing, yeah. So to be honest, the other part of it, which is the strange part of it, was I was going to Mountain View a lot because where she was working. So mm-hmm. I would come along, my contracts, I could wherever I wanted to at the time with design work. But I was listening to the Steve Jobs biography and I was thinking a lot about, you know, a lot of talk in there about design and how he thought about design and how you look for what's not there and identify the gaps and something. And I just started applying that learning and the experience of designing mobile apps and web apps and just realized at one point kind of woke, there's no tech and the largest stage of winemaking, the longest stage of the process has zero tech and it's a wooden barrel and it's a whole lot of wooden barrels and very few people to watch them. And they're there for a year, year and a half or more. And nobody's, you know, you're spot checking them, but they're not checking them all. And there are losses. Yeah, that's kind of written off as the cost of doing business, recognizing this is the way it's been done yeah. for decades, centuries. So why change it now? Well, as I understand it as well, just like in bourbon, the aging process subtracts the angel share. Yeah. And, and you perceive that similar problem with wine barrels? A similar thing goes on in wine where it will evaporate through the wood. And that's a natural part of the process of building tannins and flavor components. And that's that's how you get great wine. They also toast their barrels inside, just like in bourbon, just not as much charred as bourbon gets. But the complexity of wine, I think, is a far more overall, I would say, because it is a living thing. And if you don't care for it, it can die and it can turn to vinegar or it can turn to just junk that you throw out. But yeah, there was a part of it that was, they've been doing this for centuries. There's a reluctance to change anything, even if it means they're losing X percentage of barrels. And here in Napa, an average cost of a barrel is $22,500 of what's inside of it. That's on average. So every time you lose- Also equally astonishing about about Napa. They're not making the $10 bottles nearly as much as they're making $50 bottles, $100 mm-hmm. bottles in Napa and Sonoma. And there's still, you know, this this current process of do some tests. You do spot tests for sure and you watch things, but you're not watching all your barrels. So the margins aren't huge and among uh, three buck chuck? <laughs> those guys are doing, I mean, those guys are making wine and giant steel tanks. And I've seen those in Modesto and places like that. And they're insane how big they are, but. That's a different business model and it works really well for them. But in here in Napa, a lot of them, that's more, there's more art, artistry to it, right? And, mm. and more um, winemakers who are kind of like painters and will have certain ways that they do things and or don't do things and tolerances that they prefer. So that was another part of 
when you design this device, it's got to be personalized to where they can control tolerances and settings and have not just have a, you know, a vanilla flavor of this thing for everybody. Well, that's actually an interesting point. I would think because you're surrounded by the more high end wines, I would imagine Cogni would be something specific that these vintners would be particularly interested in just because they have an asset to protect and yeah. a quantity of that asset that is sloughed away all the time that once they can preserve it, that's a source of revenue that adds up over time. Absolutely. And it, I mean, the ROI on a device like this is easy to make up over the course of a year. Easy. I mean, just the labor and the thing, even if they have in-house testing for titration or things they normally do, this thing's going to pay for itself in like half the year or less. I was, that's a huge part of the pitch, I would imagine. Yeah, that it's, it's an outlay. Part. But as you say, if it pays for itself within the year, that's that's a no-brainer. No. Well, now tell me about the science of what actually happens with Cogni. I mean, you saw the problem and your design instinct kicked in and you thought, how can I get a prototype going? Well, yeah. what does Cogni specifically do? And what was your first iteration in terms of how you hooked it up to make it do what you wanted it to do? The way I approached how I was going to make it do things was to look at it from their eyes, like look at it with my normal design lens of I'm not designing this for myself, I'm designing this for somebody else. So immerse myself into the world of what they're doing. Literally, I would work in warehouses uh, for a day or two, which was pretty rough work. But you get to understand what do they care about? What do they don't care about? It sounds like you're just drinking from a fire hose because you had to learn about winemaking and work on this device at the same time. And that's a hell of a Venn diagram to try and uh, manage. Yeah, there were a lot of there were a few subjects that I had to really, really get a crash course. And so I knew that there were a whole list of challenges to make this work. It couldn't be something that, for instance, injected wine into it and then spit it back out to do a test. Couldn't do that because then it would ruin the wine or there's a chance of bacterial growth by doing that alone. So there were all these different things. It had to be small enough to do the standard way. It couldn't add tasks to their day. It had to save them time. So the approach was with that in mind from that angle. And the way to get it to work was incredibly complex to have it touch the wine, but not have to, like I said, not have to have the wine come into a chamber and then come back out. So it sits there in the wine and it does go from, obviously it goes from a liquid phase to a gas phase. Is it like, it's a, it's a probe of some kind or does like it? This. Um, it's actually, it just goes right into the barrel. And this it goes into the bung, the bung hole? It goes right in, yeah. And this part here is like a standard bung, essentially. The same process of putting this in as you would a standard bung, except that it's a device. For those of you who aren't seeing this, this is about the size of a small flashlight. It's about six inches deep into the wine and serves yeah. as, I guess, is there a membrane in there somehow? Or is that, there uh, isn't, yeah, it's water Is it kind of like the a, bubbler for a for beer, uh, for example? It's a little more complicated than that, but it is. Well, airtight. I would certainly hope so as a dumb layman like me. <laughs> uh, it's hydrophobic, though. So okay. it does allow ions in, it does allow other things in. And that was a lot of work to get not just a membrane of sorts, but some sort of protective layers and system to where we can get the things we want to measure into the chamber, but not the things we don't want to come into the chamber. And then also have it strong enough to where it can still clean it the same way. We can still deal with it. If it falls, it doesn't break. There were just so many challenges that we knew up front. Like it has to do all these things or it won't be valuable. It won't be used. They won't adopt it. Because again, uh, it's an industry that hasn't changed in centuries. 
it really had to do everything well in a smart way to improve the process. And how do you take precautions against impurities and spoilage? And imagine just the, the idea of just having these two elements, these diverse elements seal. Yeah, uh, That's got to be foolproof. And I imagine there was a lot of missteps along the way. I mean, that, that's we did blow up a lot of rockets. I mean, we had a lot of sensors. When we were developing <laughs> that sounds those. fun. So that's a... <laughs> we, we, we did fry a lot of electronics because you think about it. It's a, it's a very small environment. It's an alcohol level. It's an SO2 level. So these are caustic things. I mean, the SO2 and liquid are not great. I mean, you're, you're talking about and that's SO2. Is, is that sulfur oxide? Yeah, sulfur dioxide yep. that's used dioxide, uh, right, that yeah. as a mitigation against a bacterial growth in the wine. They use it as a common thing. But they use very small trace amounts of powder, usually, uh, when the wine is hef- healthy enough. But that's in there. So we had to understand that, look, that stuff's going into play. So we knew, for instance, we had to use food-grade steel, just like they use on their tanks. And we knew that we had to use silicone just like they use on their bones. So the only two things that are coming into play, aside from the membrane, which is another, you know, like high-end Teflon military strength type thing, yeah, uh, there was nothing that was going to be toxic. We had to be able to promise that to winemakers and say, we're not going to mess up your wine by putting this thing in and letting it sit there for you know months at a time. So, now, how long did it take until you had a prototype that you knew accomplished all that? I mean, in wine ages, if it's a red wine, it's a, it's one year or more, you know, on average. Our figuring was, let make it last a year. If it needs to go two years, we come in, we switch them out in one day, and then they're good. As far as getting it to work, it was over a year. It was a year and a half. So this is a COVID project. And I think I, I was, in a strange way, it was a bit of, I don't want to say blessing, but it was a benefit that I could call anybody and they'd answer the phone. They're not doing anything. I mean, they were making hand sanitizer instead of electronics. They couldn't get supplies to make electronics because all the supply lines were just done, not moving, especially out here. So when I called with questions, they'd be like, sure, go ask me anything you want. And so I'd get their brain start churning on, hey, if you had to make, how you're going to measure SO2 and wine, how would you do it? You know, How would your sensors or your approach work with this? So there was a lot of experimentation actually going on per sensor because it does nine different things. Each sensor I had a sort of a homework of, okay, how's this one doing? How's pH doing? How's you know temp and humidity doing? And there was a list of questions and, t- and challenges and they, they would start doing some of that work during COVID because there was not a whole lot else to do. That's, That's kind of amazing too. The idea that all this has come together. I mean, if you if you look at the start of COVID as almost exactly three years ago, yeah. Uh, for this to be this developed and this ready to for market, yeah. if it's a year long process the, for testing and you've got it down in three years, that's a that seems like a really efficient process. I mean, it, it was insanely efficient. And I've had people tell me, I mean, I don't go into the numbers, but the amount that we spend it was very little for the prototypes. And I've had people, even my CFO is like, how the hell did you pull this off with this amount of money? Because yeah. we had angel funding. I mean, our first round was $300,000. I couldn't get 50,000 at first, you know, during COVID, you could not get money. So again, I was self-funding. But uh, eventually, once we had enough of proof of concept, and we had the patents filed and all the things that we needed to, to in the in the incorporation, which was the foundation of all of us, which is key, you know, obviously to 
get, get your turf kind of protected as much as you can. It was moving forward from that, you know, that point. And it was a lot of work. Then it was lucky enough that, you know, last year people started being able to meet in person. Um, and so I was able to um, go meet people in Napa, go show them, you know, go, go to Silicon Valley and meet the elect engineers and, you know, see how we're doing. Um, so but, you do possess the IP. Yeah, it's kind of, it's either owned or co-owned IP. I mean, some of it is co-owned only because we didn't invent the type of sensor that's you doing this, but a lot of the ways we're doing it are novel, a lot. So, I mean, these, these sensors, some of them started out as uh, off the shelf. They are not off the shelf anymore whatsoever. And a lot of smart people, you know, I, got, I think that's a big part of it too, as I've always had part of this team, even early on with advisors, I've, I had really smart people around me being able to guide me, teach me, direct me, you know, even just the business side of it. Uh, luckily, you know, living in Boston, you get exposed to a lot of higher education people there. And I, I had worked at a startup there that was in higher education in Harvard Square. And so you meet a lot of people there that, you know, a couple of them are still my advisors now. Yeah, that's very it's helpful. A, we talk a lot about mentorship. There's a whole combination of things, but you know, at the end of the day, it's what everybody else talks about. It's persistence. Like you just keep going. And when there was COVID going on, it was it was a little easier to keep going because I didn't want to keep watching Tiger King over and over again. Like I, I would run out of things to do. You know? Well, that makes a pair of us for sure. Yeah. I mean, whatever reason, this turned into a passion and I could not not think about it. I could not not imagine doing it. Um, to where I would just annoy the living hell out of my wife. It was right. she's over well. Let's talk a bit about because I think as the CEO and chief communicator, your job is to describe what Cogni does. And I would imagine you know the first adopters, they're all vintners and onophiles, and they yeah. speak the same jargon you do. So I imagine those conversations are rather straightforward and and uh, progress pretty smoothly. But as you expand out, you get into equity crowdfunding, you're trying yeah. to explain to people who might not necessarily be fully aware of, of the Vintner's lexicon. Um, what does Cogni do specifically? It's got wireless sensors in there. What is it sensing? And what is it signaling a Vintner to do if it sets off an alert of some kind? Based on studying and understanding the parameters we came up with that they needed in our first release were temperature, humidity, pressure. We measure SO2, which is, means free and molecular. These are types of SO2 measurements that a winemaker uses all the time. pH is another one. Acetic acid is another one. Phenols are one we added just because, as an edge case, because of smoke exposure is a big thing. Like you mentioned, wildfires, like that's a thing that happens every year. Oh, I would bet. Yeah. There's alcohol. And another thing that's really big that it does is it tells them when the barrel has to be topped off, which means it tells them when there's too much airspace on the top of the barrel from the natural evaporating process, which you would get, but you don't want to keep that oxygen in the top of the barrel in the headspace because it will slowly degrade the quality of the wine and its color. And it's a bad thing. So um, part of it is actually you have to top off with with newer wine. Yeah, with uh, other with other wine from the same lot because usually what oh, happens okay. with wine, it's a group of barrels that live together. So say it's ten barrels from the same plot of land that were harvested at the same time, and they're all cab grapes. They live as ten barrels, but you're slowly, slowly, ever so slightly condensing those down to where you might have nine and a half by the end of the you know end of the time. Well, how does this uh, preserve? I mean, I imagine it used to be you'd have eight and a half or something. You know, you'd have a far lower percentage of what you started out with 
So how is this helping you preserve more of, of what you started out with so that you're okay. not replacing as much as you might need to otherwise? If you think about it right now, the current system, they use the calendar. So they say, okay, in six weeks, I'm going to check the barrels. Regardless of do they need topping off or not, that's when I'm going to pull them down with a forklift, take all day to do it, probably pull down 10, 20 barrels, and then top them off however much they need to at that time. They might be sitting there too long. If there's six barrels high, the humidity level at the top of the warehouse, no matter how well they control it, is different. And so the evaporation process is different. So what we have done is switch from this calendric system to an as-needed system. And we'll tell them, hey, it's not six weeks. You're needing to top off after four weeks. We, and we'll send an alert. Anytime a tolerance or the fill level or anything goes out of a range that they set, they get alerts. And, and that's the starting part is they'll get it on their mobile phone. They'll get it on their laptop. The, it's not just the winemaker or the owner. It's the seller manager and it's the warehouse crew and they get alerts as well. So it's a key part of this. We have no product without our application. And um, our application is a big, big part of what we're doing and that it will let them know when something falls out of range. It's then up to them to decide how do they mitigate if they need to. So if SO2 is low, obviously you pull it and you add more SO2. If pH is falling out of range, there's other things that they have to do in that process to be able to correct that. But the beauty of it is if nothing is happening, and it's all good, then you don't get an alert and you're fine. But you can at least you can still see the levels and see the data over time on your dashboard and be able to say, okay, I have healthy barrels. Imagine how many problems are getting spotted that they would have never ever known about before and could be sitting there for weeks and develop brett or some other horrible sort of bacterial thing or yeast thing, and it destroys the wine. And so does the IN wine way. eventually become a three buck chuck? <laughs> well, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, you know, maybe not even that. It's probably not even drinkable. But, oh, I mean, yeah, imagine it goes on salad dressing for sure. Yeah, sometimes it becomes vinegar. So yeah. um, not a very great vinegar, but yeah. So if you're a vintner and you're learning to use this technology, is it pretty intuitive for someone who knows what they're doing in terms of recognizing all of the levels that need to be within those preset ranges? I mean, is there a lot of training involved when someone comes on board and becomes a client and takes possession of a bunch of these? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're pre-market, but the, we have a ton of early testing and development partners out there that are wineries. Um, and when we're using this, there's not a steep learning curve to it. I mean, these are all parameters that look at every day or every week anyway. So the way that we have it, as far as our business model, we do the installation and calibrate and all that. They just look on their phone. We'll tell them, this is how you wash it. This is how you take care of it. This is things you may don't do. But in general, there's not a whole, whole lot to it. It's more of I, now I have this thing on my phone and I, wherever I am on the planet, if I'm in France at one of my wineries there, I can still see what's going on back in Napa. And so it's, it's designed to be like kind of a fire and forget kind of thing. Right. Yeah. The Ron Popeil approach. Just set it and forget it. That's right. Something like <laughs> um, that. Something like now- that. And you've had a couple, you've had a successful seed round now. So you have a bit more cash to use. Yeah. I would imagine part of that would be toward looking ahead to needing to scale this process, you know, depending upon how widespread this tool becomes, which based upon what you've said, it sounds like since uh, it's effective and pays for itself. I mean, how is the sky not the limit here? 
Uh, it's pretty scary in a way, uh, the challenge of how, having enough to manufacturing partners, for instance, in place for when we go to launch it later this year. Mm. Um, because we thought at first, we're going to sell maybe 10,000 of these in a year. Now it's jumped to about 40 to 50,000. It's growing. So we, you know, we're talking about we're going to very shortly here probably be taking pre-orders and deposits because um, obviously that helps finance your inventory and the creation of it. But yeah, we've had a successful seed round. It's a $2 million round. We're almost out of it. And we're going to quickly move into our first price round, which is our go-to-market amount, um, which is exciting because it's, you know, it's, yes, it is a lot of spending of money in different ways because we are scaling and moving at a really pretty quick pace. Um, and our team is growing too. So, I mean, I have basically the core kind of board around me that I'll need to go forward. Every week I have measurable growth as far as different parameters in, in the company. Well, and that's an interesting point too. When you talk to people at various stages of equity crowdfunding, there are people starting up now who have found a very different economic climate yeah. than was the case when COVID started. So if you talk about your experience in the crowdfunding stage, you mentioned that, you know, failing is scary, but succeeding can be scary too. <laughs> so it's a no-win situation. So yeah, the bottom line is don't do it. <laughs> no, I, mean, it's, I say scary, but it's a good scary. When I yeah. say scary, it's a challenge, but it is a great challenge. When we started the, the seed fund, the seed invest uh, and crowdfunding there, um, it was tricky because they got acquired right after we went live. Uh, yep. They got bought. But we still got a really, I think, a pretty good result of, you know, we were we were only live there about two months and we ended up getting a few hundred thousand out of that. The other thing it did, though, was obviously it, it helps you. It's it's free marketing. You know, it, it, you get people that come in and then they tell other people and they tell other people. And then all of a sudden there's people coming in saying, hey, well, I want to put a 100K into this. I think it worked out really well. It was also a great way to get people in that could invest, you know, $5,000 and didn't have a $100,000 minimum like we have in our seed round. So it was a great way for people to have that window of opportunity to get in. But I think, yeah, the climate, especially when we started with seed invest, it was a, we have a hardware device and a SaaS type platform and man, people were not being able to raise money in those at all. So the fact that we were even given money, I had advisors telling me like, you're doing great because other people who have hardware are not getting money at all and having to practically close shop. I really feel like we have a great story and we have a great idea and it's a no brainer, really. It's all well thought out. It's a pretty well oiled machine that keeps going yeah. uh, a little faster every day. But well, you say you're going to close down this current round, but you're not done fundraising based now on your experience having successfully raised before, but knowing that you're in for a lot of different parameters going forward. What, if anything, would you change about the process, about your marketing, about your communication? What are you prepared for? I think what happens is that when you have your angel, we had an angel round. So our angel round is friends and family. When you get the seed round, you spread out a little bit more and it's people that know people. But when you get to, you know, when once we go to price round, that's a different ballgame altogether. That's big leagues. You're talking to a VC and they want proof. They want evidence. They want data. You know, and, and they want control. They want, <laughs> yeah. yeah, and they want terms. That's a different game. So you're leveling up um, in a way. And I think most people, they, they know that, they see that. They, but, but actually doing it, there's a lot of prep. And there's a lot of 
get your stuff together before you go talk to a VC. You don't just go talk to a VC and wing it. You know, there's a lot of homework to that. Yeah, you can't go to a VC and just say, hey, it's a no-brainer? <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. Shocker. Come on, just give me your money. Come on, yeah. you don't, you don't Come on money. man. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's the difference is that you're you're talking to a different crowd. They get that it's winemaking. Oh, great. I, I collect wine. That's great. But they're not going to be passionate about what it's doing for the wine industry. They're wanting to know how am I going to make money and how many multiples, you know, do you think you're going to exit at and all this. So, you know, how to put a business plan together. I mean, I didn't know so that's that. new for you, too. That was new for me too. I didn't go to business school, but Peter Olson's a senior advisor. I mean, he's, he used to be a professor at Harvard business school and uh, a nice connection to have, I guess you made contact with him in Massachusetts. Yeah, exactly. So I worked for him and his wife, Candace's startup there for a couple of years and got to know a lot of the people there that are now, you know, a few of them are involved. I mean, I've had people tell me that the business plan is like the best they've ever seen and stuff like that. I'm like, yeah, it's because I had a guy working with me every week for two years to hone in on it. But, you know, that kind of helps. But, you know, there's people like that here too. I mean, in, in wine country here, it's like every neighbor is somebody, they made their huge fortune from something else. Right. And now they have a vineyard and it's not to make money. There's a hundred million dollar hobby. This guy's a billionaire. Like, I mean, how do you talk to somebody like that? What do they think about? But, you know, at the end of the day, they're human beings. You know, uh, event last week, you know, that was a premiere in Napa Valley was going on and you see somebody and you know how much they're worth, but they're talking about, you know, there's corn dog or something. They're talking about their car or something. But, you know, the people, they're wearing blue jeans, they're walking around with their, you know, flannel shirts and, and you don't know which one's worth five bucks and which one's worth a billion for, you know, some sometimes. It's kind of weird to think that someone puts up a hundred grand and thinks he's got 10,000 more of those. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, kind of showy, but it is at the end of the day, people down to earth, approachable. You know, if you have a good idea, they love, they love the story. But again, like you evolve to it. So, I mean, you know, in the seed round, it was, there were challenges and you, you learn and you grow from that, but it's, persistence to just keep with it and if you follow the you trust in the process by the time you get to the price drown you know what you got to do right and people in the bay area know a lot about swimming with sharks both literally and figuratively um what else do you think about in terms of potential headwinds going forward i mean we talked a lot about the tailwinds and and how easily relatively easy the marketing has come but when you think about what keeps you up at night what sort of things are you uh, prepared for going down the road as you do scale up and as presumably more money comes in? I mean, the big thing I think about is keeping up with with inventory and being able to have enough of these when we launch and not be in a place where people are waiting months to get them and getting frustrated because they can't take delivery or we can't install. That's a big thing for me. Another big thing is, you know, I'm fundraising. I'm always in that mode as CEO. So that's the thing that keeps me up is uh, where are we going next? How are we going to do this? How are we really going to raise the amount we need? That keeps me up as well. I think with the device itself, make sure we have as much real world data and real barrels as we can possibly get over time, get it certified, get it tested, make sure it's validated. And that's been something we've been doing for months, but that's a big, big deal because we can't have any skepticism as to what we're doing. You know, There's a lot of that that you have to overcome. We're even talking about having a governing body come in and just look at our testing and barrels and say, yeah, this is legit. They're doing it the right way. I was thinking, too, when you start having a lot of customers, you have to think about customer service. Oh, you absolutely. have to work about quality control. 
if a client asserts that the product didn't work or you have oh, to yeah. determine, like, was it your fault that it didn't work or is it their fault that it didn't work? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, all those scenarios are going to happen, unfortunately. You're going to have to think about those no matter how well you plan, it's going to happen inevitably. We are thinking about that. We are thinking about how we roll out. That's why one of the big things we're doing is we're not rolling out globally. We're launching in just Napa and Sonoma. So we're having a very small right, area. So delivery is going to be less of a challenge, shipping. Yeah, and so so yeah. We work out the logistics. We work out the kinks to being able to kit and stage and deliver and install and you know have forward teams that go out and see, do they even have Wi-Fi in a cave? Like, you know, just things like that. We keep the geography small. We know we want to go to France, Italy, and Spain, obviously, but we can't go there until we have it really well played out and really well thought out and figure out all the little things. Plus, the thing you have to think about, too, is, you know, going to market this in France is so different than marketing in Napa and Sonoma near Silicon Valley. And, and that's another reason, again, why we're starting in Napa and Sonoma first. Then they hear about us. And then yeah. it's a, it becomes a little easier to get in. We already have people from France and Italy, Spain, even other countries all over the place saying, hey, I want to buy these. You got the um, UK making champagne now. I mean, it's crazy. I and mean, it's been well documented that the UK is making good french champagne <laughs> so uh that's quite something never thought that would happen but we also never thought there'd be snow over here so i mean you know it's a lot of things change and you have to adapt to them and uh so when we talk about the next step for simple labs and cogni where can potential investors find you online? Where can interested investors find you? We have a lot of links on our website that are particular to, hey, I'm interested in investing. I'm interested in being on your mailing list, whatever it is. And we respond to that stuff. And then from there, it's you know, it's a matter of we have a pitch deck. We have other things we can present to show what we're doing, the proof of concept, the evidence behind it. Um, but right now, yeah, we're, we're finishing out a seed round. But there still will be opportunities for people to get in at a comparatively, I guess, smaller amounts than it will be in a price round. If you go to simplelabs.com, that's a big one. I would suggest that's probably your, your main starting point. A lot of the information about us and our product is there too. Simple yeah. Labs is the parent company. Cogni is the primary product at the moment. Yeah. Do you have any longer term plans of ex expanding the product line that Simple Labs offers? What might come next for Simple Labs? So I have a five-year plan where we're talking about a bourbon device as a second device. We're talking about var variations of this device that can float or attach to tanks. We're talking about, you know, the fragrance industry uses uh, barrels for barrel aging. A lot of spirits age in wooden barrels as well. And there's a standard sort of size for the plug, you know, that goes into the barrel. So we get into bourbon. I mean, there's there's millions of barrels in bourbon, and and they definitely want something like this. They voice that for. I mean, I've had people back from Kentucky that will be like, "Hey, why didn't you do bourbon first? The supply uh, must be just ridiculous. They can't build enough rick houses to house the barrels. I mean, they have rick houses holding fifty eight thousand barrels, and they don't have enough rick houses. That's a crazy amount of demand and growth. Speaking of losing the angel share, there's a real abiding interest in maintaining your supply as much as you can and topping off when you need to and retaining as much to bring it to market because, you know, people get fatigued from signing up with their local, you know, seller saying, you give me the high sign when the next pappy comes in. Yeah. And I think for them and even in wine too, it's, hey, I mean, why not have the data to show what happened to this bourbon over time? If you had a QR code on your bottle, it said... Here's the barrel it came from and everything went great. 
You know, I mean, that could be a huge selling point, huge future revenue stream. The data itself, the amount of massive data we're going to get in a year, two years, three years about grapes globally and these devices on, you know, who knows how many barrels we're at that point. Yeah, well, I've enjoyed talking to you so much that I'm going to get off this podcast. I'm going to pour myself a little Four Roses small batch (laughs) and toast the success of Cogni, which is a product of Simple Labs. And I have been talking to the CEO and founder, Mike Sloan, S-L-O-N-E. I have been your host, Doug French. Mike, it's been great talking to you. Uh, Congratulations on the success so far. And I wish you the best of luck going forward. I'll be watching. I really appreciate you reaching out because I, I love this kind of stuff. I love, you know, just telling the story and sharing, especially when you're sharing something with people that might be one to try to do this, something like this themselves. And how the hell do you do it? You know, and um, I think that's helpful for people in a lot of ways to be able to say, like, if this guy can do it, my God. <laughs> that's yeah. an inspiration for sure. Well, thanks so much. It's been a great opportunity. I appreciate it. I mean, we'll talk again soon. Hope so. And everyone, thank you for listening to episode 257 of the Successfully Funded Podcast. And we'll be back next week with another entrepreneur who uh, who knows the proof is in the pudding. <laughs> I really got to work on my, on my ending because... <laughs> uh, all right. Thanks for listening, guys. We'll see you in two weeks. Bye-bye.